Typically, when we think about being in community, we typically think about people who are most like ourselves. When we define what is our community, we often define it by our life stage because other people are in the kind of the, our same boat. We define it by um, those who are in close proximity, maybe who live next door to us. We define it by people that we see on a regular basis. We define it a lot by who shares similar interests. But I think there's a broader definition, a maybe more biblical definition of God's intention of what true community can look like. I have a little video that I want to start out by saying, and I'll, uh, it's, it's in Danish, but I came across this video and went, oh, that's good. I want to capture that. So let's just begin by watching this together. It's easy to put people in boxes. There's us. And there's them, the high earners, and those just getting by, those we trust, and those we try to avoid. There's the new Danes, and those who've always been here, the people from the countryside, and those who've never seen a cow, the religious, and the self-confident. There are those we share something with, and those we don't share anything with. Velkommen. Det kommer til at stille jer nogle spørgsmål i dag. Some, nogle af dem kan godt være lidt personlige, men jeg håber, I vil svare Hvem herinde i rummet var klassens klovn? Who in this room was a class clown? Hvem er bonusforældre? Who are step-parents? And then suddenly, there's us. We who believe in life after death. We who've seen UFOs. And all of us who love to dance. We who've been bullied. And we who've bullied others. And then there's us, the lucky ones who've had sex this past week. We who are broken-hearted. We who are madly in love. We who feel lonely. We who have found the meaning of life. And we who have saved lives. And then there's all of us who just love Denmark. So maybe there's more that brings us together than we think. TV2 Denmark. All that we share. All that we share. Except figuring out what we share often takes a little bit more effort than what might look like from curb appeal. For Jesus, 
Community was simply more than a group of friends or people that were most like himself. In fact, when we read the creation story in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, what we get is a glimpse of the deeper nature of community. And we see it relayed in the nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because it says, let us make man in our image. There is this relational dynamic between the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and say, let us make man in our image. So in humanity, we're created with a relational instinct. And it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert. There is something inherently relational in all of us. So whether you're most outgoing or, or introverted, you can still feel pangs of loneliness. You can still feel pangs of alienation. You can still have longing for deep fellowship. And so this truth, I think, is what explains that why you can take people from all different walks of life and still find a connection. Who among us hasn't been sort of forced into, and maybe that's not the word, or placed into a, a kind of situation where you've come to appreciate a neighbor a coworker, simply because your circumstances in your life brought you together. They're not necessarily someone that you would have chosen as a running mate, someone that you would have said, oh, let's get lunch together. But because of your work environment or your lifestyle, or, or, or maybe because of, of your living situation, you were drawn together and you realized there's something about them that I can actually appreciate. And like the video said, community is all that we share. It's what we discover when we're willing and able to overcome the differences of culture, of beliefs, of opinions, and maybe even convictions. Doing the hard work, overcoming the hurdle of simply finding what's common among us. In February, I was invited back to an event that a few of us had attended in a year ago, and it was the Chin National Day. Chin is a state in Burma, and uh, they have about three or 400 people within the Chin state. There's a couple of thousand Burmese that are in Austin, but they want to be able to have a place to be able to celebrate their culture and their faith. Kind of like we're making it. We're making a life for ourselves, but we still want it, our kids to know the larger story of their lives, which I can kind of appreciate. And so a few of us last year had just been introduced to Pastor Jonathan, who came to our one-year party at the arcade. And uh, I'd gone out to lunch with him. He invited us. There was about eight of us that went down. And, and to be honest, um, again, three or 400 people, kids running around. It was sort of controlled chaos. Um, most of it was in Burmese. Uh, we didn't have much of a relationship with anyone. And um, it was not great sound mix, not nice music, and a lot of folky dancing that wasn't really particularly well done from a presentational level. But you're like, oh, that's okay. I'll just kind of support them in, in body and, and encourage them and good for them. Well, what what struck me was I went back to it this year. Now they threw it together and Jonathan had said, could you invite Mission Hills? Um, I want to share my culture with them. And, and, I, and I said, well, sure, except that they're not actually planners and we as Americans are pretty in a 
monogamous, committed relationship with our calendars. And so, um, like, the week before, it turns out it's on a Tuesday night, like, in southeast Austin. I'm like, okay. Uh, no, I, uh, like, it's too hard to promote this. Anyway, I went solo. And the first thing I did, I walk in, he's like, well, and he starts naming some of you and going, where's, where's, and I go, well, it's a Tuesday night, brother. I'm, I'm all you got. And here's what struck me. I started walking around how many people I knew, and it felt really good. And I was able to call a lot of them by name, and they have some really weird, hard-to-remember names. And then it occurred to me how many people knew me that I couldn't even remember their name. Pastor David! Pastor David! And it felt like I was home. And then it occurred to me what has transpired in a year. And it all started to just catch up. How many times do you have those moments where you can actually see growth? Where you can actually measure community? And I'm thinking, oh, over the last year, I've been in their home and their home and their home. And I've been, oh, yeah, we went to, we went to their memorial service. Oh, but I went to his wedding. <laughs> oh, we had them at this football party that was just chaos. And we were trying to teach them about UT football. And oh, that's right. I bumped heads with that little girl while we were slip and sliding in July. And I got a black eye up at the lake. And then, oh, yeah, we towed them on the boat and did tubing. And oh, yeah, one thing after another. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah, we, we helped them move in. They got a home. They got to experience a little bit of the American dream and did a housewarming party. And the whole year started to flash before my eyes and realize. How do you measure community? How do you measure growth? And it occurred to me in one year's time, I was at the same program and I even knew the dances. I remembered them. And I go, oh yeah, this is that little harvesting one. Oh yeah, this is that one. And, and nothing had changed in the program. It was the same deal. And yet I had come to identify these people as part of my calling. These were my community. I felt like I've gotten, I've not only found this place where I'm known, but I feel like I value them. And, and part of what I've come to experience isn't just what we've been able to do for them. It's what I've been able to learn about family and faith from them. So my life is better because when you grow up in abject poverty and when you grow up in abundance, your notion of God as provider is radically different because I come to faith saying, yes, I need God. But that's mostly a spiritual statement. But when you have no resource, no education, no sort of upwardly mobile trajectory in your life, and you say, I have faith in Christ, in Christ alone, that's really different. When you have a faith that says, I can worship at my leisure, I can go to church if I feel like it, or if it's convenient, or if it's the right time of day, or if they have proper childcare, versus I gather in secret because it's illegal and I could be in prison for my faith, and if I want to get baptized, we gather for a, quote, family reunion out by some back roads river. There is so much that they teach me about a living faith. And what you do to rely on community isn't just, oh, no, I'm good, thank you. It's no, it's interdependency. Independence doesn't go anywhere in a, in a, in a culture of scarcity. But they're rich in interdependent relationship.
And so my life has been made so much better. So when I start to get a glimpse over what Jesus had in mind when he talked about being in community, it, it, it's, it's a stronger picture than, similar, than just finding people who are most similar to myself. So Jesus is walking along and he, and, and again, this is very easy to miss if you grow up in churches like I do. A lot of churches aren't just divided um, by ethnicity, though that is a primary way that churches are often separated. A lot of churches are divided by economics as well. And so if you grow up in a church that's largely homogenous, lacking much diversity socio uh, or ethnically, you can miss out on one of the key tenets of the life of Christ, and that is Jesus was such a revolutionary because he was willing to cross social divides and find what was common among them. And in part of his discipleship of these good Jewish boys was to instill in them that this message of new life wasn't intended for just their own kind. And so there's these moments where Jesus is walking through Samaria and he encounters a woman at the well. And this isn't just any woman. She's at the height of the day, the heat of the day. And so all the other women had come to the well in the morning. Jesus prophetically speaks into her life. This is John chapter 4. And he simply recognizes that you have no husband. You have five. And the one you're currently living with isn't even the one you're married to. And she's astounded how much he knows about her. The disciples had gone to find lunch. They come back. He's talking to a Samaritan woman during the day alone, breaking all of the taboos. And he's like, oh no, she's who I came for. Wait, there's like categorically reasons why we don't associate with people like her. You know, the them versus us. There's another moment in, in Luke chapter 9 where, where Jesus or, or the disciples were sent ahead um, to this town of Samaritans. But it says that they rejected him. They didn't welcome them because they were headed for Jerusalem. It was Passover. They knew they were on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but the Samaritans and the Jews were at odds. And so they didn't welcome them into their town. And here's James and John. I mean, not just disciples. They were like inner circle disciples. They're like, oh, Jesus they didn't welcome us. Should we call down fire? I mean, I mean, get this. It's like, oh, okay, you want to mess with us? We got Jesus on our team. Should we call down fire? Here's what Jesus does. Even after not welcoming them, he rebukes his disciples for their view of others, and then he simply just moves on to another village. Jesus understood the political and the, and, and the history uh, and the spiritual history between the Samaritans. They're looking at him and like, oh my gosh, these, these low-life half-breeds are not welcoming us into their town. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, let's just go on to another town because he somehow understands the history, their antagonism, their disillusionment, why they wouldn't welcome him. Rather than correcting them, he rebukes the disciples. Now you start to get this glimpse of who's in and who's out with community with Christ. Wait, so those people that we grew up as knowing as enemies are actually not on the outs with you? But then there's this other time where Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. He's talking to a bunch of Jews and he tells the story of a man who profited greatly. It had been a bumper crop year and so the man reflected to himself saying, 
hmm, what should I do with all of my earnings? I know I'll build bigger barns. And in one of the few examples in the life of Christ, he's like, oh, to hell with you. He literally says, you fool, tonight you will die. Uh, this is how it will be for whoever stores up for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Wait a second. Jesus is, asked, as, uh, Jesus is being, wrestling with the question, who is my community? Who is my family? Who's in and who's out? So you've got a Samaritan woman at the well who's living with her fifth husband. And he's like, oh, she's in. You've got Samaritans who won't welcome Jesus and his entourage on their way to Passover. And he's like, oh, no, they're in. But then you've got a Jew who's like hit it big and doesn't know what to do with his wealth other than build bigger barns. He's like, oh, no, that joker's out. All of a sudden, Jesus, in this revolutionary way, is turning the kingdom of God on its side. And so there is in each of us this need to reinvent our belief system, maybe even our cultural biases, and be able to soften our hearts and recognize that in each of us, we already bear the image of God. There's already similarity. There's already connection. There's already something common among us. And we're invited to this divine mystery to figure out what it is as image bearers that we already have in common. This to me is fascinating. Jesus gets confronted by the crowds and and while he's doing this work, and this is in Luke chapter 8, you might want to just uh, kind of reference that if you have something, uh, you can go to it on your app. But if you grow up going to church without much diversity, it really gets easy to miss how much Jesus crosses social divides. And he's simply discovering community um, with people based on their ability to give and receive. And so in Luke chapter 8, he goes through a couple of things. He talks about the parable of the sower. You might be familiar with this. He tells about scattering seed. And the seed was the truth of God's word. Now, I can be guilty of selective listening. I can be guilty of selective reading because there's parts of scripture that are easier for me to accept than other parts. There are some less convicting or some more like a goosebump that I would rather embrace. He talks about the scattering of seed of God's word and some found a fell on rocky soil and it had no root and some was dried out and eaten by birds and others found fertile soil. And he talks about the soil of our heart. And then he moves on to talk about the lamp and the stand because he said, if this word takes root in your heart, there will be a testimony. There will be good fruit, good soil, equals good fruit. And then the crowds are budging in. And this is the question we get. Who is my family, he asks. Which is sort of an insulting question. Over the last few weeks, we've been wrestling with the question or, or the statement of Jesus, the self-deflecting um, statement in, in going through Lent saying, it's not my own. And I would simply counter, this is a moment where Jesus kind of says, who is my family? Who is my community? Because it's not about my charm, and it's not about my wealth. It's not my own influence. It's all what God, as an image bearer, it's what, who God draws me to and who I can find connection with. And so in this Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, he says these words. 
Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you, which is great. Like, he totally doesn't claim them. Like, I mean, how, how it's like, imagine you doing this to a spouse. Like, oh, are, are we together? And Jesus simply says, my brother and brother, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. In other words, he's asking the question, who's my family? To which I would simply say, the ones who put God's word into practice. He identifies his community by the fertile soil of his or her heart. And if the soil of our hearts are fertile, doesn't matter our age, doesn't matter our background, doesn't matter our economic standing, it's receptive and it bears fruit. It develops, it grows, it gives, it receives. Maybe we could say it this way, biblical community, not just those who are familiar, not just those who I like. Biblical community is when we discover both our potential and find our contribution. In so many ways, community is like a family who shares in the chores. It's how we invest in each other. It's how we demonstrate care. But it's also how we serve God. And it doesn't start, stop with those whom we like or those who we know or those who we agree with or those we actually care about. It extends far greater. This is what it means to have fertile soil for God's word in our hearts. And this is who Jesus begins to say, this, this is my family. My family is bigger than blood ties. My family is bigger than simply genealogy. My mother, my brothers, my sisters are those who put God's word into practice. This is the beauty of what it means to be a biblically functioning community. There's a book that was written, and I came across this story. It's called Last Hour of Ancient Sunlight. And I just want to read you a little story out of it because, to me, it captures some of what we're talking about here. And the author meets a Native American healer who lives in a mobile home on a desert reservation, pitifully lacking in anything but scrub brush, cactus, and dust. If you've ever driven in the southeast of the United States, you know exactly. If you've ever been on Navajo Nation, you know what this is like. It, it's what you might imagine. In a beat-up old trailer, drives a 1970s Chevy with major body parts missing. He lived in the middle of nowhere and got by bartering with neighbors for food, gasoline, and clothes. His IRS tax form listed $500 last year. And by any American standard, it's poverty. But this is what he said. I'm a rich man while motioning his hand around the finger of the reservation. If I get sick, there's people that'll care for me. If I need food, my neighbors will give me food. It always materializes from someone's home. I know that I won't die alone. And when I get old, I'll move in with someone because I'll be a village elder. And they'll revere me and they'll want my wisdom and they'll take care of me. So the author, asks his upwardly mobile friend, hey, let me ask you a question. What would you do if you lost your job? Well, I don't know, probably find another one. 
Yeah, but what if there was a recession and you just couldn't just jump in and find another job very readily? Well, I, I, I guess I'd probably lose my house shortly after. Yeah, but what if you got sick in the middle of that job search and even if you found a job, it would be hard to land it? He says, well, then I wouldn't have insurance and I couldn't pay for healthcare without insurance. And on it goes. And what he concludes is that you can be wealthy but not secure. And in the end, in the end wealth is relational. I think we are small in number. I think we are modest in our financial position. But we are rich in the wealth that comes with fellowship, with knowing Christ, and in the relationships we share, both one to another and those who are in need. I think this is what God has invited us into. Jeremiah speaks these words about seeking the wealth and the prosperity, the health and the welfare of the city in which we live. And those were spoken to people who are already in captivity. And God says, I hear the cry of the oppressed. I hear what you're saying. And deliverance will come, but not for another 70 years. So while you're there, make the city better. And so we are not called to just simply prop up ourselves and create a self-preservation path. Ours is a community that rallies around God's concern for the city of Austin and the larger world. And so this is what it means to be in community. Not simply because we like sipping the same vino and eating at the same restaurants and partying at the same kind of events, but being able to recognize where needs among us exist and I've got a resource of people that I can call on to help you move, to help you watch your kids. And so we're constantly open to the idea of new missional partners, new missional opportunities. We have a, a child care training event coming up in a couple of weeks where you can get certified within multi-foster adoptive agencies so that you can just become a resource person for foster care. Say, yeah, you need some time off? Yeah, I, I've been trained. I, I can do that. Uh, you, you have a heart for immigrants, refugees, resettlement? Yeah, there's a place for that. But it also becomes a place that we get to partner together. A couple weeks ago, we had dinner at a supper club at Foundation Community. One of the things I loved was Buddy cast the net within his neighborhood three minutes away. And I think there was six families from Avery Ranch that showed up. They'd never come to our worship service. They'd never even come to an event. I'd met a couple of them at, in their living room at an event or a party at their house, but we just got to serve together people who are all subsidized. I thought this is a picture of what it means to be in community and to introduce ourselves to growing friendships with Austin. And so my hope is that you would continue to buy into what it means to find, do the hard work of finding what's common among us, even though it doesn't look super like, I, I, I can't connect with you right away. 
We are image bearers. Let me pray with us as we close out our time together. Our Heavenly Father, I recognize that you are writing redemptive stories in each of us. And the story feels like it's so hard to give of myself when I'm so in need. And yet that's part of our own salvation. I pray that you would meet us in our moments of need uh, with deep friendship, the ability to receive, the ability to ask, but also the ability to be interrupted, the ability to be inconvenienced. I pray that our faith in you could actually feel disruptive so that it can be transformational. I just contend that new life is, is your desire for each of us, but it's not until we give you our whole hearts and lay ourselves down can you be resurrected in us. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see that which you see and ears to hear that which you hear and that you would make us your tangible hands and feet, your ears and eyes to be able to bring a little more shalom, a little more heaven on earth. And we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.